By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adam and Golf. So I typically refer to this this thing that we're going to talk about on this episode as the why word because I don't want to give anyone the heebie-jeebies, but we're going to go straight into it today. We're going to talk about the yips, which is can be a very dark topic for a lot of golfers and painful. Adam, have you ever had the yips? I I haven't. I suppose it depends how you define it. I have been a poor short putter in the past. But I wouldn't define it as something like a complete loss of control, as if like my body is not in my control. So I mean, yeah, interested to see how it's defined. Yeah, that's that's what we're gonna get into. I mean, I I feel like I have the functioning chipping yips. <laughs> I feel like I, I'm someone who exists with it and I just don't give it much notice. I just kinda am okay with it and it just kind of pops up here and there and I'm like, yeah, whatever. But I've had I've had some stuff with short putts where I've had to make some changes. Maybe they weren't good ones. I don't know, but they've kind of passed over the years. I've had the shanks before. I've gotten through that. But anyway, we're going to talk about the yips this episode. And we have someone who has been recognized in the golf industry as someone who, I don't want to, I don't want to say he he cures it or he helps mitigate it, but we'll, we'll ask him. So we have Ward Jarvis with us, who's a mental performance coach. Ward, thank you for joining the sweet spot. Hey guys, it's great to be with you. So Ward, you have a really interesting backstory. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what led. I know you, you just don't deal with just the yips. You help golfers with a lot of other performance stuff, but we're going to focus on that in this episode. But you have an interesting background on how you gained some knowledge in this area. So why don't you uh, give a little introduction on yourself here? I'll try to give you the short version, but 
Yeah, I tell people my story reminds me a lot of what Steve Jobs told the graduating class at Stanford in 2005. And one of the points he made in his talk was that in real time, you know, we have these dots or highlights in our life and we're not always able to make make sense of each dot or connect the dots with other dots. But sometimes, you know, looking back, we have the good fortune to be able to, you know, connect the dots in our life. And and my story is a lot like that. You know, I think one of the first significant dots was the fact that that uh, when I started speaking as a child and getting into my grade school days, it was evident that I was one of uh, 70 million people worldwide who uh, would experience stuttering for life in my case. And so I grew up as a person who stuttered and started playing golf around the age of 10. And, you know, golf was my first memory of being good at something, especially in relation to my peers, the people I played with. I was just a little better at that time. And I won a, um, a statewide junior tournament. I'm Tiger Woods' age, just to kind of put me in reference how old I am. This was in Kentucky, correct? You're from you're Yeah, from this is in Kentucky. So okay. I'll never forget it. You know, I was just playing a nine-hole match at a high school, and I had a probably about a two-footer, and I just experienced it like I had never experienced a putt before. And it was just simply a negative thought got in my mind, just like, what, what would it be like if you actually missed this? And I went on to put this, put this weird kind of stroke out of my control on it, and it, it missed, and that kind of was kind of a domino effect, more or less, for, for a good solid year or more of just – more or less having the putting yips and as a pretty successful junior golfer. And so, you know, I pieced it back together as good as I could, you know, be somewhat competitive, but never kind of on the same trajectory. Went on to do some other things. Went on to grad school, studied religion at the academic level, thought I'd teach that the rest of my life. Got out of grad school, just kind of disillusioned with the fact that I really didn't want to talk about religion in an academic setting the rest of my life. So it was like, you know, what the heck do I do? So I had some uh, friends who happened to be professional golfers, some on tour. And so I basically kind of was footloose, fancy free, didn't have any kids, wife or anything like that. I went out and became a caddy on the nationwide tour. And it was during that time that um, I met a lot of golfers and, you know, had a great experience caddying. And then I met my wife-to-be, kids came along, and I'm like, I can't continue on this road. It's not a real fruitful path, you know, for, for the life I wanted to live. And I moved back to my hometown, became a firefighter. And the last guy I ever caddied for was in 2010 and happened to be a player named Brendan Todd. Brendan was an All-American at Georgia, won national championship with Chris Kirk, Kevin Kisner, Brian Harmon, just, you know, studs on tour. And basically, I'd already decided I was leaving caddying. It was literally my last event ever. You know, and I told him that, and he was cool. But Brendan then was kind of in the, in his, in the midst of his first bout with what he calls the full swing yips. And it was just two or three tee shots every single round that were just off the property. And that's a hard place to play from in professional golf, as we all know. And then at the very end of 15, he, this, this full swing yip kind of reemerged in his game. And he effectively missed uh, roughly 42 cuts in a row, was on the verge of quitting and everything. But all along, I was kind of developing, I'd gone back to a thought that my experience with stuttering and my experience with the yips felt exactly the same. So I had an inkling that from the brain's perspective, 
something similar was going on across those domains. And I had, as a firefighter, I had been having a lot of difficulty with my speech, a lot of stuttering episodes in, in what I call non-emergency traffic on the radio. And so I developed a lot of these ideas. I started studying stuttering at, at kind of the academic level. And I started just making all these parallels between how the brain orchestrates movement. And I was thinking about golf the whole time. Like this could really relate to the yips in particular. Jotted out some ideas and I called Brendan up, never thinking he'd really take my call, remember who I was. But long story short, we started a conversation in 2000, August of 2018, and we've spoken every, every week since. So you know, I started talking about the yips with, with Brendan Todd and you know, talked with a lot of people about it since. Well, that's when I first heard about you because he had a like incredible. I mean, he was one of the biggest stories in golf. His reemergence. I mean, his career. He was pretty much quitting golf, right? He was done. Yeah, I mean, literally one week before I called him up, he he had met with his accountant about possibly opening up a pizza franchise. So that's how how close things were. Yeah, and then he just went on this like absolute tear. And one got into top player in the world again. And that's when I first started reading about you because obviously they're like, how'd you do it? And your name came up. So obviously that's like an incredible success story of one of the best players in the world, totally losing it and then getting it back again. In your research, I think this is the thing I'm most interested to learn. What are the yips? We refer to it like as, you know, is it a mental thing? Is it a physical thing? Like based on the research that you've come across, like what is it? Well, you know, my biggest takeaway from from stuttering research was that stuttering is a movement issue. It's it's movement at the end of the day. So the yips, the yips is a movement issue. It's in how, how the brain's coordinating movement, the, 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 the sources of information it's taking in to determine, you know, how we move. And Researchers for a long time have, have called the brain a predictive machine. And basically, in part, what they're referring to is that when it comes to the movements we make or the movements that we're able to make, the brain is predictive rather than reactive. It's not just reacting to an intent we have. There's stuff going on beforehand that's more or less determining or heavily influencing how the body's going to move. And... I've kind of confined those two those two main sources of input to the brain's drawing on memory, and in the golfer's case, past memories, not so much procedural memories, but those emotional memories that, that we attach to our golf experiences. And then number two, it's, it's drawing on what's coming in in actual real time, you know, through the senses, through our pre-shot routines. And I call those kind of the perception of control points. You know, is the brain able to latch on to any anything that feels halfway controllable. So the use at the end of the day can, can be defined in a lot of ways. You know, I call it kind of a temporary or occasional loss of an automatic ability, something that's kind of supposed to, to operate in, in automatic mode, becomes the monitoring systems of the brain, that the tensional systems are kind of uh, taken over, and that kind of, at the end of the day, impacts how, how we move. So... That's what the question I kept getting from people. They say, like, is it does it start from a physical problem, like a technical issue in the golf swing? Or is it like you said, you were stepping up to that putt one day and you're like, oh, crap, this doesn't feel good. Because I think that's what a lot of golfers want to know. Is it like, am I 
usually I hear about chipping and putting yips, full swing yips are a bit scarier to me, to be honest. But in your experience dealing with golfers, like, does it start from like a technical source or is it like someone manifesting something in their, in their mind that didn't exist before? Or can you really even tell the difference? Like, that's, what's kind of fascinating about this to me. It's like, how do you even draw the line between the two? Yeah, I don't think there's there's one answer to that question because obviously it's different for different people. And I think uh, at the end of the day, they they start in different ways with different people. But I have seen a lot of cases where you have a player who's always had good touch. Say, we'll, we'll just take like an around the green shot, for instance. You take a player who's had good touch, but maybe done things technically or mechanically that wouldn't be textbook. For instance, you, you may have a player in this full swing whose head movement, you know, generally moves back, you know, to allow for some shallowing, you know, and they they may have actually used that same technique the, the, their whole life chipping, but they've had good hands and they've always been able to stay out of their way mentally, so they've they've been able to match the timing issues up to be good chippers or good, or good enough chippers, right? And then all of a sudden, for one reason or another, they face that shot one day out in front of the green and they scoop it in a weird way or double chip it or scroll it over the green. And now now they get kind of mentally upside down. And, you know, in a case like that, I think it's great to return to, to mechanics and maybe rediscuss mechanics and maybe even just make a few tweaks. Maybe take a player that's more shuffling and make them more, you know, change his technique up, his strategy. You know, but take them from shaft lane to more neutral and more using the bounce type stuff. That type of stuff in it, in itself can can help people get out of the yips in some cases. That's why I was curious because the struggles I've had, like one time I had the shanks for the summer and one time I had the putting yips and I just kind of like totally changed everything or just like maybe I, I don't know what caused or what had, but I... I changed the way I held the putter. I changed, I just changed everything and it gave me like kind of a new reference point. It just kind of ran its course. I don't know if that was the right intervention or if it was going to pass anyway, but so some players you would say it could be a technical thing they need to change. And then for other players, it, so it sounds like there could be different solutions for different players. Yeah. I mean, in the case of the technical case, you know, there's all, there's most of the time there's going to be residual fear that, that you, you have to deal with and kind of, smooth out as I like to say and just and that kind of involves helping them de- deal with some past memories maybe establish some new training routines and just put some different processes into both their 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 prep and their processes you know a- a- as they perform there are definitely certain techniques that have lower margins for error so say for example an extreme case would be someone chipping using very little bounce so you know they've got tons of forward shaft lean so they're taking all the bounce off the club and then using a very stabby approach so i've seen it where you know some decent chippers i've even seen scratch players really stab down take a short stabby swing into the ground and obviously if you hit the ball first and then the ground you can get good results out of that but if you hit just half an inch behind you're going to get a completely different outcome Whereas the other side of the spectrum, someone with a shallower approach using more bounce, they can get away with hitting the ground half an inch, inch, maybe even two or three inches behind on certain turfs. And so, uh, yeah, the way I see from a technical point of view, yips coming is when you take that guy with the small margin for error, the stabby approach, and his 
timing, whatever that means, gets slightly off and he starts hitting more of those half-inch behind shots and then he starts getting disasters. So he's he's obviously had very good hand-eye coordination in the past, but for whatever reason, a little bit of pressure maybe starts to open up some more human variation and then, uh, yeah, those those bad shots come out. But, yeah, so that's what I would see as the technical side of it. But I know there are some players who I look at and I say, well, your technique is fine, but you produce a completely different technique under pressure. And that kind of brings us, you know, back to, like, short putts. You can have really bad technique and you get the ball in the hole, you know, from two feet or one feet. And even, you know, I think studies have shown that the, the club face can be open or closed to a degree and putts will go in from up to 10 feet, you know, I've heard. And so... So in those cases, it's not, it's a little different, right? It's not so much technique that's going to be your your answer, probably. It's going to be more, you know, your, your mental processes and, you know, how, how, how are you figuring out to stay out of your way? The putting in, there's a lot more creativity, of course. Walk us through what you did with Brendan Todd, because obviously he knew how to drive a golf ball straight or else he wouldn't have won on the PGA Tour. And then all of a sudden this thing starts creeping in and debilitates him. So how did you help build him back up where he could stand? Because if you can't, that's the one that's the most terrifying to me. If you can't drive the ball, if you've got the full full swing yips with the driver, like that is, you can't play golf. That's the scary one to me. So how does someone like that gain the confidence to go back under all that pressure and perform again? How did you, how did you help him build back up? You know, Brendan and I had a lot of golf swing philosophy chats in terms of like, he obviously has a lot of knowledge about the golf swing, particularly his golf swing. And and he had gotten away from some things that he felt a lot of perception of control around, namely his takeaway. His long-term takeaway was always kind of rolling it open. That just kind of allowed him to automatically re- release the club. And he's he's kind of on the shorter end of things. Well, he is on the shorter end of things on t- tour-wise. So he'd always had a lot of pressure to hit the ball higher, hit the ball further and all that stuff. And, you know, a, a, lot, of, a lot of swing advice he was getting around that was, okay, let's shut the face, getting back, create a little more launch coming forward, stuff like that. And the thing with Brendan, he's such a great athlete, it, it, it worked for a while. When his full swing yips came back, he was in the last group with Jason Day in the next to last playoff event at the BMW. So he had shot like 64, 65 going into Saturday. And so the swing tip was helping, but it was kind of outside of his d- DNA. And then when, when for one reason or another, he sent one kind of off, off the map, it worked until it didn't, right? And so a lot of his was coming back to kind of a, a takeaway, a swing structure that, that he felt a lot of perception of control around. And with BT and I, we just tried to kind of stay in that frame of reference. You know, it's kind of like, you know, a lot of times with the full swing yips, I'll tell players, like, you're going to get a lot of good information from your swing instructor. And you need to kind of be able to rate that information in terms like break it down into its pieces and be able to kind of rate each piece in terms of like your feel of being able to do it under pressure. So for example, if a player has the chipping yips, a lot of times the issues are at contact or, or even with the full swing, the issues are with the strike and at contact and the anticipation there. And so the thought of, like with a chip, the thought of just brush the grass might really sound great, but to the person experiencing the yips, 
that's kind of a terrifying thought because it's putting their, it's basically telling them to focus at the very point where they've lost a sense of control. So if you're the instructor, it would be a lot better to give them more backswing thoughts or put them kind of more stance thoughts, you know, stuff like that, where a person might have a chance of, of feeling a little more control. And then oftentimes if they get into that sense of control, then they'll brush the grass all day long. So you're, you're, they're, they're getting the same def- destination, maybe just in the indirect way. So th- that's just kind of, kind of the trial and error stuff of coaching s- someone through it. So essentially you're trying to experiment where you can place their attention to reduce their anxiety about what's going on at impact. And that that's probably going to be a different answer for each player. Yeah. Yeah. I think as you experiment with it, as you talk through it, as you kind of organize in your mind, you know, it, it becomes clearer over time. What do you think the golf world has gotten wrong about the yips? Yeah. You know, I think on the whole, the golf industry, I think, I think we're failing golfers with the yips. I think we're failing to see some opportunities in front of us for both a grow the game initiative. You know, a lot of players quit because they had the yips and it's so debilitating, right? And if they can find a way to deal with it, maybe understand it a little better, maybe practice around it, maybe take some processes, of course, that can kind of, you know, smooth out their experience, give them a better way of, of dealing with it. We're probably going to retain a lot more golfers that way. And on the flip side, there's a lot of talk these days about improving the product. And instead of instead of commentary just be, oh, you know, he's trying to a different putting method today, you know, Maybe talk about the yips, talk about the yips in golf, talk about the fact that Mayo Clinic did a study over 20 years ago that interviewed over 1,000 competitive golfers, and over 52% responded that they had experienced the yips at one point or another. And talk about the fact that it's something that, you know, as golfers, we think about them because we either experience them or we see other people experience them and we fear them, right? Well, I think that's one of the reasons we don't want to bring it up because, you know, yeah, that's one yeah. of the reasons I've been scared to talk about it because I don't want people like thinking about it. But at the same time, like I've experienced it and I know a ton of people listening to the show are probably experiencing it right now. Yeah, it's kind of like, I think in the movie Harry Potter, he had the power because he, he would name uh, Valdemar, whatever the guy's name was. Yeah. So sometimes sometimes I've seen a lot of players, you know, gain confidence by finding a way to talk about it and finding a way to name it. It's At the end of the day, we've, we've got to kind of objectify it and not make, take it so personal. You know, it's it's a human potential, right? If it is a movement thing, it's a human potential. And just because we s- smooth it out for a time, it may stay smoothed out forever, but it may come back. But what it doesn't have to be is is this domino effect, that if it does happen, it's going to be exactly like the last time it happened, and it's going to have the same effects. I think the more you understand it, the more you have some concrete ideas how to train around it, you're in a much better position for that domino effect to not happen. What's if, what, what exactly is going on? with the yips what what does it feel like i i honestly i've never had it i've i've had the experience like i said of standing over a drive even and just thinking i don't know which way this is going to go and i sometimes i get the sense that when i get into that mindset and i can start having a two-way miss because i'm so frightened of a result but then i just say well just let what happens happen you know, just swing with freedom. Is the yips just a complete inability to control your own body? Like your body starts to go on its own control? It feels or? like you're gagging. <laughs> That's what it felt like to me. 
<laughs> it's like your golf swing's gagging. Well, I mean, that's a great question, Adam. And I think one tall tale sign is the anticipation. One time I say you, you, you can pretty much know whether or not you have the yips by whether you can stand over a shot and believe if if you can like believe at a real deep level that nothing crazy is probably going to happen when you go to move the club, you probably don't have the yips. But if if you can't do that, if you can't stay, stand over a shot and generally b- b- believe that when I go to move, something crazy is probably going to happen, that's kind of the telltale sign of, of, of this phenomenon is kind of that, that anticipation a- aspect. You know, like I say, if, if you could take away the anticipation, you can pretty much take away the yips, but it's a lot, it's obviously not easy to do. Would you ever get the yips if you truly didn't care about the result? I know that's impossible to do, but if you truly did not care about the outcome. The yips has something to do with the brain's monitoring system. And so you've got to find a way, especially if you're competitive, you've got to find a sustainable way, right? It's not just, you know, a lot of there's been baseball pitchers who, you know, have taken to drinking vodka on the mound because of the, the pressure and, and trying to deal with it. So there are ways, but not really sustainable ways for your well-being and, and ultimately the, the well-being of your performance. So if you had, like, let's say someone's listening to this and they've got, I mean, are the two most common you see putting and chipping? Those those seem to be the ones that affect the most people. Like, is there, for some reason, like, that's the one I always get questions about. Like, what do I do? I got the putting yips. I got the chipping yips. I don't, yeah. full swing yips maybe is hard to diagnose because sometimes golfers just hit it all over the map and that's just their swing for now. Well, sure. And it is kind of, it is kind of a good player's problem because, for starters, we never look at a 15, 20 handicap and call their slice a yip, right? It's just a bad golf yeah. shot. And so yeah, exactly. It's of, more, it's more kind of got to be in the category yeah. of, I've least you've been good in the past or hit good golf shots in the past in order to have something that classifies as, as a yip. And so, yeah, yeah, but it is very prevalent in, in around the green, you know, on the green. You might see it even more so around the green these days just because of how grass is mowed on – a lot of golf courses, the architecture, the obstacles. It's very challenging to deal with around the green because there are so many conditions of contact, right? Given the the variety of lies that we can get. Oh, yeah. I I can tell you, if I'm being fully honest, when I play in tournaments and they shave it really tight around the greens and it's firm and you know you need to get it just perfectly, like I have legitimate anxiety when I go over those shots sometimes. And it's just, you know, something I kind of deal with and get through. But yeah, it's like that anticipation where you look at it and you're like, oh God, I got to deal with this now. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, you're somewhat limited in methods you can use. You know, what methods are doing, you know, one thing they're doing, they're they're giving the brain a different experience, right? And the brain does want a different experience, you know, when you're going through, through that. And a lot of times I think people think that the brain's you know, kind of crying out for a perfect experience where there's just like, just give me a different experience, right? So you'll see it a lot around the greens. Another thing you'll kind of see, and kind of, kind of going back to defining it, instead of, in the stuttering circles, there's a lot of academic talk about the need to define stuttering from the perspective of the one experiencing it versus the observer. So an issue like, Concealment is like real. You anticipate, and then you might conceal the fact that you stutter. Well, 
around the green, you see that a lot with chipping, right? Because people might conceal the fact that they had the chipping yips by simply putting. And so that's a way to kind of deal with it. But at the, at the same time, you're not making a lot of headway in, in overcoming it if you're just simply concealing it. And sooner or later, you're going to have a situation where you got to talk, where you got to hit a chip shot. And, the, and then, you know, putting is, is a historical area where anyone can, any novice can, can make a short putt. And, you know, I've had very high-level players, they, they say, you know, my issue is with putts that my four-year-old can make. And that just kind of sets a different kind of mental environment for, for experiencing that putt. So, so for the players who have this issue, like you said, there's not a lot of resources to deal with this, like for the recreational player. So if someone's struggling out there and they can't work with a coach like you, is there some type of exploratory checklist, best practices? I know each case is a little different, but what would you tell to someone who has like this type of anxiety over, I mean, we've seen like Ernie Els deal with it. We see Will Zalatoris dealing with it on the short putts. I know Bernard Langer's career almost ended because of the putting yips. We've seen some pros overcome it. Like what's like the checklist to go through to try and like help mitigate this issue. We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour-level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonder Lux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. 
That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, you know, for, for starters, you know, I didn't grow up with the internet. I didn't really have a lot of access other than TV, maybe on, on the weekends to, to see golfers maybe going through it, you know, watch Bernard Longer or watch Chuck Knobloch of the Yankees struggle to throw from second base. It's, so for starters, just just doing the search of players that have experienced it. You know, the, the, the knowledge that you're not alone and that, that this is a real phenomenon that individuals experience, that organizations do, deal with. I mean, the kicker for the Dallas Cowboys got it on yeah, PATs that, that in the, in that the playoffs. Yeah, that, 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 that was That was painful that to watch, but yeah. college programs deal with it. I am seeing a lot of change in, in how college coaches are, are dealing with it. You know, we're probably seeing a lot of more younger players de- dealing with it, just simply – from the earlier and earlier specialization focus and the, 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 the various, you know, pressures, you know, players are going through it. But if you've got a stud who comes into your college program and all of a sudden starts dealing with it, are you just going to make it a mental toughness issue? That's what a lot of people do. Are you just going to tell them to think about their target more or just clear their mind? I mean, all this advice out there is, is good, but it really doesn't apply because it doesn't match up with how the brain operates to start with. So what are the practical? Yeah. What is the yeah, practical? Well, for for starters, you can't you know, tell someone to toughen up, obviously. Yeah, for starters, you know, I, I I would explore other stories of yips. I think that's helpful. I would start learning d- different ways to practice around it. A lot of my work is spent in the practice space, outside of kind of the conversational space, and just figure out ways to, to deal with your your specific scenarios pressurizing practice is a big topic you know that 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 kind of comes into play you know i always think it's interesting i have a practice game that i call the part two game and it's kind of a scoring game that tests your ability to hit more what i call good enough shots compared to your buddy so it rewards kind of that that eh, better play shot how many of those can you hit versus trying to practice to perfection so that's kind of from the from a strategy angle, that, that that that's kind of a piece of it in terms of like thinking through how to add some pressure because a lot of times it's not showing up in practice. And if a player has them extremely bad on the course but not in practice, that's not really a great place to be because you, you, you can really easily lose your belief in practice. So you really need to figure out ways to to bring that experience back back into your into your practice. And that can simply be you know, I say never like let go of a bad shot in the sense that it can be helpful to bring that into your practice to work, use those memories as a starting point to work through your processes when you are hitting it well and try to bring those kind of to do more scenario based practice. So would an example of that be like short putting yips? You could sit and hit a hundred four footers in a row and make them all and feel fine. And then you go to the golf course. And I had this sensation for a while, my right hand would take over and I would just totally pull the putt well left of the hole in a tournament. For me, I, I just changed everything. And that kind of got me out of that mess. For someone else, would you say that, that instead of just doing that repetitive practice, which saying like, Oh, I'm reinforced. I can do this. I can do this more. Put, put yourself under immense pressure. Like you would, perceive it on the golf course where you only have one chance to hit it, that type of stuff can help with that type of player. 
Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that can definitely be a piece. I know there's introducing a lot of variety in your practice. You know, we can get one golf shot 10 different ways, right? We can have different focuses during a shot. I think that's a good habit. Adam, in your book, you talk about kind of the, the locus of attention. You know, I call them kind of a, your swing focus. Hit a shot, hit, hit one shot where you're thinking about the target. Hit another shot where you're thinking a swing thought. Hit another shot where you're thinking about connecting with a sense, you know, hearing a sound. And it's not necessarily that, that, that you're going to take that to the golf course all the time, but what you're doing is that you're communicating to your brain that your brain's not as stuck as it thinks it is. You can actually impact the experience that you're having. And I think, I think that's really big around yips in the practice, you know, when it comes to just kind of the, the messages we're sending to our brain. And so variety is big. You know, I'm really big with, with chipping issues. I, I call it short chipping. I said develop scenarios that require you to hit very short chips. I call it kind of the office chip. It's kind of like, you know, when you're in your office chipping back and forth, you know, you can eat, you know, if you scull it, it's going to go banging into the wall and kind of creating those real short chipping scenarios. There's other drills you can do, you know, that I talk about a lot about like removing the ball, have someone kneel down and take the ball away. What that's doing is kind of dealing with that anticipation of a potential meaningful outcome. The brain likes that type of stuff because, again, you're kind of communicating that, hey, I don't just because I'm experiencing the yips now doesn't mean I'll always be experiencing them. I can experience golf shots in, in a variety of ways. So those are ways of bringing about the yips. So say, for example, you're doing practicing and you're hitting it fine. There's no yip there. And then maybe you increase the pressure to simulate the scenario and then the yip comes about. So I understand that part. But when the yip comes what do you do? Like, what's the strategy to actually get rid of that? Is that just locus of attention testing to see to see what's attached to the yip? Or, you know, so if the yip is attached to a focus of brushing the grass, maybe testing a focus of target, maybe the yip goes away then. But I'm looking for, like, real strategies for, for getting rid of the yip. Because I'll give you a scenario. The worst case of the yips I've ever seen, it was attached to the ball. So it was putting, and this guy, if you took away the ball, he would make the smoothest, most beautiful-looking putting stroke. And then all of a sudden, you put the ball there, and it would look like a heartbeat monitor. His, his swing was just so jagged. It was, it was horrendous. I'd never seen anything like it. And so we did drills where I would take the ball away. I'd make him do lots and lots of practice swings, and then I would try and drop the ball in. And still, the anticipation of the ball being there would make him do it. It got to the point where I asked him to close his eyes and make swings. And he's, he's doing this with his eyes closed. He's making these perfect swings back and forth. And then I would tell him, I'm going to put the ball in now. And even though I didn't, he would start to do the jagged, jagged stroke. So, yeah, just that anticipation. But I honestly, that was the worst case of yips I've ever seen. We did find something in the end that helped him, but I did. I wouldn't say I got rid of the yips. I felt I felt completely powerless as an instructor. The, the thing that I did with him was we got him to look at the target and make a stroke. His stroke was still jagged, but he was able to produce an outcome. We settled for that, but... How in that scenario would you get rid of that jagged stroke? Wave that magic wand, Ward. <laughs> well, I mean, it could. I would, I would definitely, and I, I would experiment with some left-handed putting and see if it's there. You know, I, th- I think that that can 
take it away because it is such a radical difference. It's even more different than the claw or, you know, I've actually seen the claw increase ships sometimes because it kind of starts you kind of in a perfect position and your job is to keep it perfect. And that's the one thing that you can't do when you have the yips. But yeah, I mean, depending on the severity, you know, a lot of times you're just looking to just kind of smooth it out. And that's kind of why it goes away totally for some and doesn't for others. I mean, I don't have that answer. I don't think anyone does. But I will say with putting, use as much creativity as you can. And I think in terms of our processes over putts, I think there's basically three areas that, that we need to be thinking about. And that's basically automatic things we can do with, with our attention. I think attention is very key. And we can sync kind of our attention and the specific things that we're t- intending to do with our attention. We can send our intention in different ways and we can sync it up with golf swings, strokes. I think th- that's crucial in terms of strategizing specifics for each player's process. I think our thinking, you know, obviously we control some measure of our thinking. If you have an intent to think something specifically at a specific point in your process, I think that can be helpful. And then third, it's moving at the end of the day. So, so it may be just a certain way you're, moving your body as you settle into a stroke. If you can kind of consciously think about the automatic nature of just take like squeezing our feet, for example, like we may be under a situation of great stress and pressure. But if I, if I told you, if you're standing over a putt, Adam, and I say, squeeze your feet, I guarantee you, you're going to be able to squeeze your feet automatically with no anticipation, no anxiety about being able to do that. Right. And so what I, I say, everyone has a perception of control somewhere. And so you just got to find that. And it could be simply as like, you know, kind of working your way through it. It's like give yourself kind of, I like a real kind of command-based self-talk. You want kind of the conversation in your head to, to basically sound like you're giving yourself commands and then you're consciously kind of experiencing yourself like doing those commands. So, so if I have a player like line the putter up and do maybe an exaggerated like arm shake as they – with the club it's not just a mindless arm shake but it's a it's an actual kind of split second conscious that they're basically kind of settling into that feel of doing something automatically because that's ultimately what what we're wanting to do over golf shots we're wanting to we give ourselves a command to hit this shot and then we want to experience ourselves doing that to a sufficient degree those would be kind of some of the specific areas in, in, in someone's process, the practical things they're doing over golf shot that, that, that I would tr- try to key in on. So it sounds like no matter what, you're going to have to be prepared to introduce some type of change. Because I, I think a lot of players, and I, I definitely did this, was my instinct was to just keep hitting, hitting, hitting and convince myself you can still hit the shot. You could still hit the shot. And then if it showed up on the course, that would increase my anxiety because like, oh, it didn't work. I, that happened again. And I found more personal success introducing some type of change just to like, and sometimes it seems like with some players like time and just not panicking, sometimes it just goes away and you're like, I've found sometimes just being like patient, being like, this isn't going to happen forever. And then if it passes, it passes. If it doesn't, then I need to keep experimenting with some type of change. But it sounds like doing the same thing and trying to convince yourself that you're the same, you know, repetition is not going to do it because you're not kind of dealing with the underlying issue. 
Yeah, I would say in most cases there has to be some element of change. It just depends on what the player wants at the end of the day. You know, some players are so good that they may have potential to win, win a lot of PJ Tour events with the actual putting yips. That they may have the talent to be the number one player in the world, which I don't believe that they'll, they'll, that they'll ever get there given the amount of energy they're going to spend on dealing with the yips in one way or another. When I started working with Brendan, you know, one of my – Comments like, my goal is to get you to be able to go to the grocery store without thinking about the big miss, you know. And so if I do that, I've reached my goal, right? And so, you know, at the professional level, that, that those are kind of the things that we're, we're dealing with. And th- there is some psychological protection sometimes, like you said, about not talking about it and not. And not, but sooner or later, I, I definitely there there has to be change. There has to be change. And it's got to be, you know, it's got to be informed by good, good information. Well, I think the good news is for the type of people who are listening to this show, and you know, I've told myself, like, it's not that big of a deal for the rest of us because at Brendan's level and other players you're working with, you know, the ability, let's say if someone had the chipping yips or, or putting yips, like the few times that happened around that, that's the difference between them making a living or just having being like, hey, this ain't for you anymore. You got to figure out something else. Like that's a much bigger deal. For the rest of us, if you've got some little bit of chipping yips or putting yips, so what are you going to do? You're going to three putt a couple of times per round. You're going to chunk or skull a few chips. Like it's really not the end of the world. And I think maintaining that perspective is helpful. <laughs> At least when people contact me with it and be like, you know what? Like this isn't the end of the world. Like you can get through this to some, because I've never seen like what Adam described. Like that's very, very extreme. Like I'm sure you've only can think of a few people in your career you've seen like that. I, I have only come across several golfers that are like that anxious about it over the course. I think for the rest of us, it's, it's kind of a big deal, but it's not the end of the world at the same time. Like, so you know, I don't want people to like completely panic about it. Well, I think stability is a big deal. You know, it's not necessarily curing or always taking away, but if you can give a player, make a player more stable kind of around the issue, you know, even when it comes to like, maybe they don't have it and fear getting it, you know, just, recognizing that there are ways to deal with it. There are ways to understand it. At the end of the day, you're making someone more stable, stable kind of in, in, in their belief system. You know, I'm actually worried about this conversation because I've been saying all all along, I've never had the yips (laughs) and I know I'm going to develop it after this conversation. Um, But yeah, from a, from a teaching point of view, how I look at it, I have kind of five things that I go for. Number one, I, I try and look at, are there, techniques that have a bigger margin for error for people so i had a guy who you know loads and loads of shaft lean he would swing back add more hinge to the club and then so the kind of mickelson hinge and hold he would add that hinge hold it and then have to dive bomb and drop down so a technique that basically his hand path is working down with a lot of shaft lean that gives you no margin for error it's one of the reasons why they say a, a tiger had the the chipping yips at that time so, you know, opening up or changing the technique to give bigger margins for error would be one. Like you said, testing attention, because sometimes I've seen the yip can be attached to a certain attention. So I've seen a player who, whenever they focus on the target, they shank it. Whereas if I can get them to focus on maybe an intermediate target or focus more on an impact factor or even focus on something technical like a takeaway, that shank goes away so that the bad shot was attached to the locus of attention. 
Then there's changing the motor program, what John was talking about, or, you know, going from a, a normal patting grip to a left hand low or claw or doing something even more wild, you know, again, because the, the yip itself, that glitch in the motor program might be attached to the motor program. So you have to change it and, and go to a completely different motor program. I know, I think Hank Haney talked about that with, he had the driving yips. And I think he had to do something crazy different for it. And then from the longer point of views thing or the, the longer term point of views, good shot attachment, I call it. So I had a, I had a girl once who was able to hit these great drives on the practice range when there was no pressure yet. She went on the course and it was everywhere. And what we did was we jumped in a buggy and I got her to stand on, on each hole and hit until she hit a good shot. And then after that good shot, she would hold her pose and squeeze the grip. And then we repeated that for every single hole that there was a drive. So she stood on that tee, hit shot, shot, shot. Okay, you've hit a good one, squeeze the grip. So now then after the round, she went off and the goal was, the homework was to sit, close your eyes and visualize those good shots while holding the club and squeezing it. So it's like the brain is, is, uh, you know, attaching the squeeze to the good shot. It's kind of a, a technique I learned from a guy called Darren Brown, who's a famous mentalist in Britain. There's lots of magic tricks and things. And I just took that and applied it to, to golf. And that worked in that regard. And then what John was talking about earlier, the last thing I do is like life philosophy stuff. Like basically <laughs> stop caring. Talk about how yeah. cosmically insignificant you are. You are a, you're not even exactly. a grain of sand on the beach of the cosmos. Who cares about your yips? <laughs> Pale blue dot philosophy. Pale Adam blue dot been, golf. That's a new Adam uh, has podcast. been called a nihilist by some of the listeners of this podcast. Maybe Careful. that's the way out of it. Nihilist. A nihilist who loves life. A nihilist who loves life. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yeah. Ward, if you don't mind me asking, I don't know how someone rehabilitates or deals with stuttering. What was it about your methods dealing with stuttering that you felt were similar to golf? So if you have a stuttering problem, like what are the ways that are shown to help? I was lucky to have a really good intervention early in terms of the speech therapist at my elementary school. And I tell the story, one of the things that we did, this back in the 80s, and every Tuesday morning we would go into a room and I would make phone calls to local department stores. And because the phone is notoriously difficult for people who stutter because you don't, it's a different form of communication. You don't see the people you're talking to. And so it's just a different context for speaking, right? And so I would call dealers, department stores, and I would basically, I would use the things that we, we've been working on during the week, you know, the methods and everything, and I would just simply apply them. And it wasn't necessarily, our goal wasn't perfect speech. It was just to more or less expand my comfort zone. And so, you know, I'd call dealers and ask if they had a, a red sweater. And, you know, what I tell people is that that's more or less a principle in performance psychology, you know, just expanding your, your comfort zone by, by doing uncomfortable things. And, you know, it can be called kind of exposure therapy, just kind of reliving kind of painful memories in order to kind of have a chance to kind of reshape them. And, and so kind of like golf, just having having a process, having a post-shot process, a post-occurrence process is important. And, and having having some game plan of, okay, you know, I've got these scenarios, they're going to come up. And sometimes it's just a matter of just, just getting through them. Sometimes, you know, we're in a better position to apply some, some strategies and stuff like that. So, 
it's just having a game plan, working the game plan, tweaking the game plan, just all the same stuff that more or less what we talk about in golf, right? It's just learning at the end of the day, learning what goes into movement and then setting ourselves up for success as, as, as best we can. Well, it sounds like one of the ways to deal with it is accepting that it's, it's still when it does happen, not to kind of like panic and overdo it and just saying like, Oh, it's not the end of the world. If it happens, especially like on the golf course, if you're dealing with this stuff, like sometimes I'll just like chili dip a wedge and I got that little like dip at impact. And I just kind of like, Oh, you know what that happened? Just move on. Is that, you know, part of his understanding, like there's no technically cure or end of all these things. I hate using the word fix in golf. Like when someone says, oh, I'm going to fix your slice. I'm like, you're, you're still going to slice. Like everyone slices from time to time. Like it's never going to go away. The goal is to kind of mitigate the issue and make it happen less often. Is that important in this context? Just like accepting that, yeah, it, it still might happen, but if I can hap- make it happen less often or at least have some more functional outcomes on the course, then that's a win and I could feel good about that and less anxious about it. Yeah, I think it's definitely a win, right? It's kind of like when when Hank was working with Charles on his his swings. It's like, d- did Charles like not do it every time? I mean, was, was that like a failure if he if he still did it every now and then? I mean, he's swinging a lot better these days, you know. And and so, well, he's had an incredible transformation. I yeah, think it was, yeah. Um, so it's like you know, with the person with stutters, I mean, does that mean that I'm not making progress because I may have a terrible stuttering occurrence? you know, in a particular scenario. I mean, it could, but n- not necessarily. It's kind of the, the, the same with golf. It's, you know, kind of like where we look for improvement matters, right? A lot of times all of us kind of talk, talk about the mental end of things, you know, one way or another. And I mean, making your processes better. You know, you may not see immediate results, but, you know, sometimes good results are two weeks down the road. So, you know, th- that, that doesn't mean that we don't, you know, just put the work aside and don't do it. And so... I think that's looking for those small wins and being creative around those small wins, you know, wherever you can find it. So a small win just might mean hitting that chip in front of your buddies when you want to put it, right? Just, you know, just to kind of put yourself under the gun, you know, especially if you've been working with Adam on your technique and everything and, you know, it's time to get locked in and do it from a competitive angle. You know, I I think that stuff has to happen. But yeah, just, you know, small wins are going to lead to the big wins. So it's just, okay, what small wins can we create? So one one philosophy I've heard, I've referenced this book a few times. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. So Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, really short book. One of his philosophies was to take what you're frightened of and actually encourage it in a way. So the example that he used that I've actually personally used, because I'm a very nervous introvert. And so my version of the yips would be if I had to stand up in front of a, a crowd of people and give a big presentation, my voice might crack, I'd get very nervous. So instead of trying to hide that and do the usual thing of, right, I'm going to walk on with my chest up, head high. Instead of doing that, actually go on the stage and say, Hey, everyone, I'm really nervous here. <laughs> My voice is probably going to crack. I'm probably going to do something strange at some point. So just bear with me and then start your presentation. And I actually love that philosophy because I have done that in the past and it completely disarmed 
the the fear of what I didn't want happen to happen. I've tried both methods, right? Walking on as the confident person who's hiding, hiding the, the thing that I'm frightened of versus just confronting it head on. And I suppose my golf version of that would be, you know, I have had players who had the shanks, say, for example, and I actually get them to hit intentional shanks. And I've found that the sometimes help get rid of it <laughs> you know as, as ironic as that is you're shanking it you're so fearful of shanking it let's spend the next five minutes trying to shank it and then we'll spend the next five minutes trying to tow it and it gets rid but what's your your thought on you know confronting your fear in that way well it, it makes you more comfortable right expands your comfort zone that self-disclosure is a great strategy in that in that because you're, you're basically setting yourself up for for your way of achieving success, you know, making yourself com- comfortable in an uncomfortable scenario. So, yeah, I, th- I think there's, and when you put yourself in that, you're getting the experience, right? Your brain's like getting the experience of actually doing it. So the more you do it, the easier it's going to get. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Frankel was huge on man can endure anything if he's got a why, you know, behind it. And, it can just be, I think, from golf, it's just kind of that mastery aspect, uh, mastery mindset of, hey, I may not get this this week, but I'm going to get it eventually, you know, and and that that's what keeps us going and looking for new ways to achieve, I think. Well, I think this is also an important message to people. One thing that I try and remind golfers as often as possible is that if you want to get better at golf or overcome something like this, and this is kind of like a managing expectations thing, you have to be playing enough golf because I fell into a trap for a while when I couldn't play much golf that whatever problems I have, I thought I could solve off the course. And then when I got on the course, there just wasn't enough time to be comfortable in that environment, pay attention to the feedback, and then go back to the drawing board on the range. I think that's kind of like the feedback loop we often talk about on this show. And let's say if you were dealing with the yips, when I like struggled with having the shanks or the putting issue, I could play 50, 60, 70, 80 times a year. So there were enough moments where I would have those little wins that you talk about. Like, you know what? I can do this rather than like only playing once a month or once every other month. And that's just, it's not enough time to overcome something like that, in my opinion. So that it's also like the disclaimer I like to give to people is that if you can't really be in in the arena enough on the golf course dealing with all these distractions and whatever anxieties and fears come up, you also have to be like kind of more gentle on yourself saying like, I don't have enough time to kind of go through this back and forth between on the course and off the course because that that, that that's, that's a really hard bridge to cross. Yeah, it's it's kind of like, you know, you show up on a golf trip and you haven't played in months and your 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 best rounds you generally your first round, right? I've had I've had several of those, you know. And, oh, and I was just on a golf yeah, I was just, just on a like, golf trip. It's just like, you know, I shoot in for the first round and then, you know, can't bust 80 the other days. It's like yeah, because my expectations were just in a different place, right? So that definitely impacts our performance and being aware of that I think is is huge, but but even if you can't play a lot of golf, you know, so if, if, if you can get an hour to sneak to the course, I think there's different things we can do in our practice, you know, that, that you know, add a little more pressure, you know, make it a little more like what we're going through, whether it's just, you know, go out there in a busy time and hit some chips, you know, just some basic chips in front of people. Going through that is going to be more useful than just going out there and just hitting everyone, every shot great, Right because you're actually kind of simulating what you're going through. It's kind of like if I got a guy out there 
who can't keep it on the map in competition, but stripes everyone on Instagram. I mean, that doesn't do any good at the end of the day. I've got to figure out as a coach, I've got to figure out a way to induce something similar to that in the laboratory setting. And that's, that's, you know, one of my interests and kind of, I think there's a, a, a lot of work yet to be done on that because, because in order to study it, it's very hard to study it in a, in a real performance setting at this, at this stage. Once we do get the right stuff in place, then it's going to be an issue of, okay, how can we induce it in a, in a laboratory in order to study it and, and actually help a player kind of being be actually, actually be in a better position to help a player work through it. I think the good news is that a lot of the things we've been discussing on this episode are luckily topics. We, we try and be a little outside of the box on this show, but they're, they mirror a lot of stuff that's been in Adam's book, stuff we've discussed on this show of trying to switch things up and practice, experiment, put pressure on yourself. It's a strange game that I think tricks us into like repetition is, is the key to success for everything. And with something like this, I think you really need to just get it's almost like you're changing the reference point, uh, whatever the answer is for you. But you have to be doing that experimentation in order to find your like personal cue. You're like, oh, that made me feel more comfortable. Like that was my answer rather than just like hammering, hammering on the same exact thing. And you're, get, you're getting nowhere almost. So I'm glad that a lot of that came up because, yeah, I mean, it, it sucks. It's not a fun thing to deal with. I, again, I'll be honest with you. Like I still have, <laughs> I have anxiety on short game shots and, and I, I play a lot of tournaments. People listen to the show know this, but like, I'll be forthright with everyone. Like I have legitimate anxiety when I walk up to certain greenside wedge shots when I play golf and I still play pretty well and post some low numbers, but I, I just have to deal with it. And I'm going to work on it more this year. I think I'm going to make some adjustments to my grip. I think going with a weaker grip is going to help get away with, because Adam, I think a lot of the things he says about there's certain parts of my technique that I can't get away with and I need to build in a little bit more of a comfort zone. But I still deal with stuff like this in my game. It used to happen to me at putting, not really anymore. But yeah, it, it's not it's not a fun thing to talk about or deal with. But again, you know, I kind of put it in perspective. It's just golf. It's not the end of the world if I skull one. Yeah, it's just, you know, big, being human too, right? We're not uh, robots and our brains are very complex things. And But it is something that, you know, I, th- I think it's definitely worthwhile exploring. And like you said, maybe in 50 years, the club manufacturers will put, you know, uh, sensors in golf clubs and we, we, we can tune in and watch best players in the world make one, one putting stroke on the putting green and then they go to the golf course and maybe we can – have an experience, a different, you know, consumer experience watching golf. You know, well, I, yeah, I, think I mean, it does. And the future I think can that's be also interesting. Like, well, it's also comforting, not comforting, but just understanding that the best players in the world have to deal with this. Like I'm thinking of, I hate bringing it up because it was sad to watch, but like Lexi Thompson, I think when she was, you know, uh, about to win the U.S. Open the other year, I remember watching her. I think it was Olympic Club. Like she she really struggled down the stretch with her putting, and you could see it was it was a bit of a yip issue. Like it, it's it's really hard to watch. Or you mentioned that Dallas Cowboys kicker in this last postseason. Like that was brutal. But the flip side of it is like, yeah, like they're – no matter how good you get at anything, some people just have to deal with this. I remember watching Chuck Knobloch growing up. He couldn't make that throw from shortstop or he was set with second baseman. I think he went to second base over it. Yeah. Um, it happens and it's, yeah. it, it could happen to the best. 
John Lester of the Cubs had to throw throw the ball and his glove the yeah, first he, base. You remember yeah, that? He couldn't, he, yeah, he couldn't throw it to the first base. <laughs> I mean, baseman. it's just a totally uh, different movement pattern, right? When you're like throwing on the go versus start and stop. And, you know, golf is golf is all start and stop. The, 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 that's why the advice just see and shoot, it really doesn't apply a lot to golf, especially to the person, you know, going through the yips. Because it's all kind of starting starting from scratch, as I say, every, every shot in a way. So, Also another one I remembered, and I think pitching is probably the hardest one because you're initiating. Remember, uh, I think Rick Ankiel. Um, yeah, he, he had the he classic case. Yeah, yeah, he couldn't and hit the mound for a that, while. That was actually one of the that. first book, books I had uh, Brendan read. Would you suggest people reading his book? It's good for a professional athlete because it really hammers in on, on the lows of the professional life, you know, and <laughs> it gave him something to ad- identify with. He he didn't make a lot of progress with his pitching yips, but they turned him into a center fielder, and he could throw strikes from from center field. So it's a it's a really it's a it's a fascinating story. I don't know if it, there's a lot of instruction in it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I remember his story. That's crazy. That I mean, the guy was just so athletic that he just changed positions. <laughs> yeah, the, the Cardinals invited the Cardinals love this guy, and they invited him back to pitch out, throw out the first pitch, and he wanted to do it from center field, and they wouldn't let him, and he he backed out of doing <laughs> it. So incredible story, though. Yeah, cool. Well, most people are looking for some type of like, oh, if I have A, give me B, like help me solve this thing. And like, it's obviously not that straightforward. Like it sounds like there's a different answer for different people and you kind of have to go through this little journey on your own to figure out what's settling you. And and, and I, I, I still think one of the, the best things, or at least this is just my anecdotal information, is like almost like not making that big of a deal out of it and saying like, I can get through this, like, this is not going to be forever. It's just golf and, and, and kind of, cause a lot of it's, it, it's the anxiety around the anticipation of it. That's it, the, it, the hardest in terms part. of a pro, post-shot process, you know, studies have shown the more we attach um, emotions to, to experiences, the, the greater it sticks in our memory. And so the more objective we can stay about just outcomes, you know, especially like while we're playing, the better off we're going to be like in terms of just having memories to work through. But but golf is emotional, right? Hitting golf shots is emotional. You can't like, you know, a lot of times I've heard a routine described in terms of brushing your teeth. And I mean, I may get emotional when I go to the dentist and have a cavity, but I've never been emotional <laughs> when I'm actively brushing my teeth. But I've been emotional a lot, like hitting golf shots, you know, and the outcomes that, that, that go with golf shots. So it's that memory piece is, is huge, especially a lot of players are playing the same course. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you get these majors that go to the same courses every year. That's a little different scenario because the, they know what's coming, right? And so you've got to deal with the memory piece of it. You've got to deal with the memory piece. The, the advice just to move on is bad advice. You've got to take that those bad memories into your practice. You've got to reshape them because – that last scenario is going to have something to do with the next scenario. But if you put a lot of other scenarios between, between those two points, the brain's also going to be drawing on that. So you want to hear something crazy that just made me remember this. I, uh, I think I shared this on the show It's a really embarrassing moment. I missed maybe a 10 inch putt in my club championship a few years ago with a lot of people watching. It wasn't a yip. It was more of a, 
I just walked up to it and brushed it. I thought it was match play still. And it was, it was just like a total brain fart and I didn't view it as a yip, but it was a really bad negative memory. And I remember in this past year in the club championship, I actually had like a two footer to win the match. And that memory is still with me. That's missing that short putt. It was so like embarrassing and painful to me that it's still there. I made the putt, but it's, it's still there. It almost like can't. And I just kind of like, acknowledge it and let it in i mean i can't control my brain completely but yeah it, it happened and it, it like kind of injected this like harsh thing into short putts and i still make a lot of them but it's it you know it's just something i kind of like live with on some level mm-hmm. yeah bad emotions are much more powerful than positive emotions right yeah. i mean we know this from social media you can have a hundred positive comments emails and then you have that one bad email or a troll saying something to you and it just affects you for the for the rest of the day if you let it yeah i mean it just it goes back to evolution right it's like you know watching johnny fall off the cliff is a lot better than you falling off the cliff but you remember what watching johnny fall off the cliff and therefore you behave accordingly right and so it's that negative memory stays with us you know for an adaptive you know reasons and and so you know just understanding that those negative thoughts in in of themselves, those alarms that go off within us, aren't necessarily saying that something bad is happening. It's just an alarm, right? And so, remind giving ourselves th- th- those reminders kind of puts us in a better position to work through it. Cool. Well, Adam, do you have any do you have any more questions for Ward? No more questions. No. Ward, do you have any closing thoughts or 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 just you know things you want people to? learn, acknowledge, whatever about this topic. Yeah, like I say, I think it's a fascinating topic. I think there's more value in talking about it and learning about it than not. I think as far as the future of golf, I think in golf, there's always something to figure out, right? That's one of the things we love about golf. And this is one thing. There are a lot of golfers, you know, there aren't a lot of people, adults, you know, kicking for the Dallas Cowboys. There aren't a lot of adults pitching for the Atlanta Braves, but there are a lot of adults who play competitive golf in, in one, one way or another. So I think the golf world owes these players a, a, a little more than we give them at times on some of these things. And the more we kind of educate ourselves on it, you know, the better our, our coaching gets, the better, better our, you know, we're, we're, we're in a better place to, to help players ultimately, you know, perform better, play better golf. So those are kind of my thoughts. Great. And it sounds like, where can people find you to learn more about this stuff? Sure. Uh, My website is wordjarvis.com. You can go check out some stuff I've uh, wrote there and kind of follow me. I'm on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at wjarviscoaching. And I try to post, you know, frequently on all these type of performance topics around the mental game and around practice and, and stuff like that. So, but my contacts and information is there if anyone once, once reach out, I'd love to chat with you. All right. And just a reminder, everyone, that you just don't deal with the yips. It's just one of the topics you deal with. You're, you're more of a comprehensive. <laughs> exactly. Coach. Exactly. So uh, sometimes it starts there and g- g- goes, I mean, Brendan and I haven't talked about the yips in four years. So, you know, we're on to other, other things, you know, f- figuring out other things, strategizing other things, you know, making our practice better, making our mind better. So, yeah, it's all about it's all, performance at the end of the day is about, you know, formulating and reaching our goals. And that's what I'm here to help people through. Awesome. Well, I'm glad he turned the page on it. That's that's pretty inspiring and encouraging. 
Thanks again for your time. Adam, where can everyone find you as always? AdamYoungGolf.com. And John, where can people find you? Just go get the book, The Four Foundations of Golf on Amazon. You can learn everything there. Thanks again for everyone listening. Appreciate it. We'll see you soon with a new episode.